So you take your seats if you take out your Bibles. Tonight we'll continue in chapter 16 of Luke's Gospels. We began a couple of weeks ago before we headed out to Israel, before we had that marvelous, wonderful trip. We will give you a you know, slideshow. We'll also let you know how we've already planned the next trip for next year. So uh, you'll be getting word on that. So if you you know, we're talking to people and you're going, man, I wish I could have gone. You'll, you'll get your chance and it'll be actually less than a year from now. Um, and just to give you a heads up, because you all cared to come out to Sunday night, you get a little preview. Next year's trip actually includes the rock city of Petra as well. So, uh, you know, if you've ever wanted to do that, save up your, uh, your denarii, your day's wages. And uh, get ready when we announce the sign-ups. Get your names on there quickly because it will undoubtedly fill up. Tonight, the rich man and Lazarus. And as a subtitle, living in the lap of misery. You know, it is a continuation, really, of the danger of loving money. And you may have remembered as we looked at the first part, uh, verses 14 to 18, Uh, Now, as we pick up uh, in verse 19 down to verse 31 tonight, you you might remember that there's that tremendous danger, and it is so much a danger in the world that we live in, because we really can't have two masters. It's just not possible. And for those that seek to have another master, and that master is mammon, that master is money, very often you end up in an extremely difficult place, because at some point in time, You're going to have to choose. And so this story of this rich man and Lazarus is really an illustration of the danger of loving money. Loving money more than God. Loving money more than people. Loving money really more than anything else. And it can have, and notice I said can have, eternal consequences. As I said two weeks ago, money in itself is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It's what you do with it. It's how you use it. It's a tool. In the hands of a righteous person, money can be used for absolutely amazing things. It takes a lot of money to send a team to Ireland. It costs things. If we're going to take, which we're taking them a sound system to leave at one of the churches there. Uh, You all paid for that. And as you've earned those funds and as you've given uh, of yourselves and your family's resources unto the Lord, some of those, those resources, because you've not loved them, you've let them go, they're being used for kingdom things. And so the money itself can actually be really good if it's used for kingdom things. But if money itself becomes an object, If it is that money that you're seeking after and not the Lord, remember, we're to seek after God. We're to seek after righteousness. And then all these other things that we as human beings desire will be added unto us if we seek first his kingdom. This story illustrates that in as powerful a way as one can possibly ever see. And so you see here two men, You see two very different deaths. You see two totally different destinies. And you see the effects of those choices, both eternally and temporally. And so tonight, the rich man and Lazarus, or living 
in the lap of misery. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the attention uh, of your people and how we long to hear from you. That your word again would be alive to us, that it strengthen us, encourage us. Uh, So many of us, Lord, have people in our lives that are procrastinating. They they say things as if they have uh, dozens of years to live, and yet your word's so clear that tomorrow is not promised to any one of us. Or we don't know when our last day on this planet's going to take place. We don't know when our last breath will exhale from our lungs. And so we pray that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. We'd never be tempted to love money. And God, where you give us resources and riches, would they be used for your kingdom? And so, Lord, bless as we study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be picking up in verse 19. And I want to begin by reminding you of something. You may remember that passage where Jesus is speaking, and and he speaks to the disciples. There are some Pharisees that are listening, but he says some simple words in John 8. There in verse 32, he says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Can I tell you tonight, you can hear truth and not know truth? You can hear truth even understand truth and not act on truth. You can know what truth is in essence and be completely unaffected by truth. In order for truth of any kind, but especially biblical truth, in order for truth to do any good for any of us, you must use it. Truth only sets people free who actually take that truth and live it. And that is true with this passage tonight. You you see, Jesus Christ to us is to be Savior and is to be Lord. And, And if he's not Savior, and if he's not Lord, if he's not both of those things, the wrong choice, if you will, with that decision uh, can leave you exposed to living uh, in, in the lap of mis- misery. We, we say living in the lap of luxury is how we use that phrase here in America. We say we'd like to one day, people often aspire to, if you will, living in the lap of luxury. It's why all those television shows on the Discovery Channel are so popular. It's not like mega yachts and mega homes and mega bank accounts and super gigantic mega you know, kitchens and We have all those kind of shows. And people watch them. They're extremely popular. But if you ever think about the kind of money it takes to actually have those things, the chances of any of us ever having them are pretty much zero. Amen? You know, I I don't have a spare half billion dollars laying around to buy Donald Trump's yacht. Which, by the way, is how he was planning on financing the next part of his campaign. He actually said that. He said, well, I can just sell the yacht and finance that. That's, that's a little more than uh, a couple of coins and piggy bank, amen? But you see, very often people begin to look at their life as if it is the accumulation of things that matters. And can I tell you, you can have everything that this world has to offer 
and absolutely have nothing. Some of the most empty and bitter, embittered people that you will ever meet are people who have, in essence, as far as the world is concerned, everything. And that is one of the two men that we find in this story. The truth of what we do with Jesus. Who is your master? Who is your Lord? Who is it that governs the affairs of man? We believe that there's a sovereign God that most of us in here tonight, maybe not all, and so maybe for some of you tonight, this might be a concept that is not familiar to you, that there really is a God in heaven, and that God in heaven is actually the one to whom one day you are going to give an account for how you lived your life. You see, probably most of us in here who know the Lord, love the Lord, have walked with the Lord, have friends, and they're in that group that I call procrastinators for Christ. And the reason I call them that is they always have an excuse for why they are not going to give their life to Jesus, or if they think they have, they're not actually going to live for him now. They're going to put it off until they're so old and so decrepit they can no longer sin effectively, and so it will have no attraction. You understand what I'm saying, right? You've met them, you know them. It's like, okay, I've lived my whole life, I've gone to every party I can go to, I've had every relationship, I've taken every kind of drug, I've gone through everything, experience in the world, I've had this and I've had that, but I'm going to put off this whole Jesus thing until I can't sin no more. That's this guy. You see, this man Lazarus sat at the front gate of this man's estate. He saw Lazarus every single day, and he got sick of seeing Lazarus. Now, I will tell you, when I was in the business world, I was like this guy. I didn't want to see anybody who wasn't, you know, quite where we were financially. Matter of fact, you still find those people today, and they live in little cloistered enclaves. If you've ever traveled, and I'm not picking on anybody at all, and praise God, there may be some here tonight that have substantial wealth and resources, and you use them for God's kingdom, so take no offense at what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to include everyone in this group. But by and large, If you travel to Holmby Hills or you travel to Hollywood or you travel to Bel Air and you travel where there are gated communities with people of substance and means, they don't want to see anything that isn't in their little world. Tidy and clean. You will never find a homeless person at the gate of a rich person. And here's why. It messes with their mojo. You know, it's not my image. I don't want somebody thinking that might be one of my kids. They do everything they can. They would never let it happen. You see, what they don't actually realize is who you serve in this life is where you're going to spend eternity. What you live for in this life dictates where you're going to spend the rest of the life hereafter. 
People are so set on figuring out how they can get the best out of what is here now that they forget that eternity is a whole lot longer than your life right here on this earth. And it's where people get messed up. They get so caught up in these few years that were granted by God's grace while we're here in these earthly tents on this earth. We get so caught up that we forget we're going to spend an inordinate amount of our eternity in that state that's not in this fleshly body. That's why James called our lives here on this earth a vapor. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. When you get to heaven, you aren't even going to remember what, what it was like here on this earth because of the glories of heaven. And yet some people live as though all that matters is a couple extra dollars in the bank, a little bit bigger car, a little bit bigger house, a little bit bigger this, a little bit bigger that, and some bigger bills to go with the bigger things. You need to make a wise choice, the proper decision. And so we find here first two very different deaths. And it says in verse 19, let's read this. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now whenever you see purple cloth, that was from uh, the region of Pamphylia, and it was uh, the purple cloth was the royal cloth. And so this is a guy who has substantial means. The average person never saw a, a swatch of purple cloth. It was very, very expensive to manufacture. Only the most extreme wealthy had that. And on top of that, he had fine linen. And when we think of linen, I don't know about you, but you listen to these commercials on, on radio, and it's like, I think one of them is Bowl and Branch. And you can get, you know, some Egyptian 5 million thread count sheets, and, and they're only $439. And I'm thinking, I can go to Home Goods and get those for 12 bucks. Not quite, you know, I'm cheap, you know. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, but that's really what he's saying. You see, because the average person didn't have linen at all, much less fine linen. They had what you and I would call basically burlap. Now, I don't know if you've ever put burlap on your skin. It's not a pleasant feeling. It's similar to a combination between caterpillars and sandpaper. And so it's like it kind of, you know, like the moment it touches your skin, you want to go someplace else. Wherever the burlap is not, that's where you want to be. But this guy had purple and white linen. And he ate like a king. While we were in Israel, we ate like kings and queens. It was ridiculous. We'd go to the buffet. I don't know if you've ever gotten sick of desserts, but I finally got to where I would walk to the dessert line, which was like 100 feet long. I'm just like, oh, Sorbet and torts and, you know, chocolate truffles again? Yuck. You know, normally you're going like, chocolate truffles, those, that looks pretty good. But this guy fared like that every day. His life was full of excess. And he had what most people never see. As I was sitting there, I was looking at all this food, and one of the meals that we had, actually one of the last meals we had, we were in this Arab restaurant 
in the port city of Jaffa. And we're sitting there, and, and the crazy thing with Middle Eastern hospitality, they want you to die from the intake of food so that they can say they killed you with love. And so the whole table is completely spread with food before you ever sit down. You've ordered nothing. And you're looking at all these salads and going, okay, well, if I ate these two, that would be more than enough. And then they start bringing more food. And before you know it, you're just like, I, if I stuff this in my ear, it's not going to go in. You know, it's just not possible. And after a while, you, you look at the table and we get done with the meal. And it's like what we're, what we're throwing away. And I'm watching them scrape all this food into these tubs. I'm going, that could feed like 400 people. And so I thought to myself, this is what it's like for those who have excess and they don't think anything of it. They live like this every day. It's like, ah, throw it out. Who cares? And then you go down to the corner of Vermont and Lamita and you watch all those homeless people that come out of the the bushes and and they walk over and, and they're rummaging through dumpsters searching for some scraps. That's the story of these two people. On one hand, you have the person who has so much that they don't even realize how much they have. And on the other hand, you have somebody who has so little that they're not sure they're going to make it through the day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Now you can see the picture. Here's the gated compound at some really nice place, and I'll choose not to mention any names so I offend no one but it's a nice place it's a gated community and here comes Lazarus the homeless guy and a couple of his buddies put him at the gate of this palatial mansion and the rich guy's coming and going and the gates and out comes the Audi R8 and the dude's in it it's like can't believe that guy's still here. But he was desiring to be fed, notice this, with the dumpster divings, with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. After the guy got done eating, the stuff that got scraped off into the trash, Lazarus was going, that's a feast. And moreover, the dogs, now remember the dogs at that time would have been unclean because of what they eat. Dogs eat carrion. To touch anything dead makes you ceremonially unclean. And so the dogs are licking the open sores on Lazarus. They licked his sores. It's two men, two very different men. One, a a picture of absolute opulence and one absolute poverty. They, they couldn't be any further on, on the other ends of the spectrum as far as life is concerned. And I want you to notice the wonderful way in which the Lord deals with this whole scenario. You see this poor man, Lazarus, though he was a picture of abject poverty, he would die in want, he would die in neglect, Uh, 
which apparently is the rich man's goal. If you think about it, the rich man's basically saying, man, can't we do something about this guy? I want to share with you, uh, we attempted when the, the El Nino that was the El Nada during this, this winter, when we had that whole thing going on, we had, we had approached the county of Los Angeles and said, we have a building and we'd like to open it up to a homeless shelter, just a temporary shelter. We could take maybe 70, 80 people. We'll house them, we'll feed them, we'll put them up, we'll keep them warm, we'll keep them out of the rain, we'll do all this, and we'll do it for free. That was the plan. About a month and a half later, we got word back, well, we can't do that. And and I was stunned. I said, you're telling me that because of a permitting issue, we're not talking about something permanent, we're not talking about putting in, you know, some massive compound that's going to affect the property values in the neighborhood. We just simply want to take care of people who are less fortunate. They said, you can't do it. I said, we own the building. It's free and clear. We don't have any debt on it. We own the parking lot next door to it. You know, there's no palatial mansions. Nobody's going to be offended. You'll never see them. We'll even... We'll paint flowers on the building to make it look like a forest or something. <laughs> now you can't do that. The reason being is you got to put those kind of people in their place. They can only be certain places. And I thought to myself, how much like this story is that? That we can see a need and yet be restrained from doing something about it. In this case, the man saw the need and didn't care. Worse than that, he didn't want it on his property. He didn't want it affecting his property values. He didn't want to be associated with somebody so lowly as a beggar who's being licked by dogs with open sores. And so in this story, these two very different men, the rich man dies thinking that he's something. He's all that. He's one of those guys, that famous bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toy wins. I always like to scribble on there, nothing. Because you really don't. He had all the toys. He had the nice address. He had everything. But the poor man died knowing that he was nothing. He made no mistakes about his own identity. He had no grand illusion. He knew he was nothing. A rich man received, notice this, notice this, the rich man received exactly what he had earned, which was judgment. And the poor man received that which he had not earned. He received grace. Oh boy, I don't have to tell you which one of those you want. Amen? You see, when you think you have it all, when you think you can earn it, when you think you can buy it, when you think you deserve it, you better be really careful. 
But when you know you can't earn it, when you know you don't deserve it, when you absolutely can't purchase it, and you're looking for somebody to do it for you, that puts you in the place of grace. Notice these two very different destinies. A rich man, he's in misery. Verse 22, and so it was that the beggar died. And notice what happens to him, and I love this. Can I remind you that God has a way of taking care of things? Maybe not immediately in the here and now, but always in the hereafter. You you may be saying to yourself, you know, I've really never done well. I've never prospered while I've been here on this earth. I've been denied everything. I haven't had the opportunity. I've gone through life, and I don't know what it's like to to go to Ruth's Chris and get that 48-ounce porterhouse with the bone hanging out on somebody else's plate. I don't know what that's like. Trust me, when you get to heaven, you ain't going to care. God's got a way of working out all those inequities. And we see it in this picture. And the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now it's interesting, and we'll get to it in a moment, that this place, Abraham's bosom, and Hades were at that time the same place. Same word is used here, Sheol. They're they're both there but they're in two very distinct places, and we're going to see that in just a moment. And he lifted up his eyes and saw that Abraham was afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham. Now, so you can tell this man was of Hebrew heritage. He knew Abraham. He could spot Abraham. He sees Abraham. Have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. It's very clear that there's two different things going on in these two men's lives. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Do you see the picture of those who live for the here and the now and those who live for the hereafter? And likewise, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who pass from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. He said, if he can't come from one side of this place called Sheol to the other side of this place, also called Sheol, but with a very distinct name, Abraham's bosom, he said, if he can't do that, then why don't you send him to my father's house? Because they're still around. They're still alive. Because what I got going on right now, I don't like what I chose. And I want to speak to you for a moment because this is the eternal decision. There are a lot of people who unfortunately are going to take their first look in eternity 
and they're not going to like what they have chosen. You can't change your choice once you leave this life. So choose wisely. You get to make that choice while you're here and while you're still alive and have breath. But once you exit, you can't say, I I don't like what I chose. It has always been that way, and it would be unbelievably monument, eternally unfair and unjust were God to change his principles. And so the decision you make regarding Jesus Christ right now, tonight, matters should you take your last breath. So you know those procrastinators I was talking about? Maybe you're here and you're one of them. Maybe you know one. You're not going to be able to change. Two very different destinies. He said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Abraham, could you grab Lazarus? He looks like he's doing fine. He's over there with you being blessed. He was carried there by angels. I'm on the other side. I'm in torment. Could you at least let my family know I did a really poor job choosing where I was going to spend eternity? Please read with me what follows. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses. Now remember, this is a Jewish setting. And the prophets, let them hear them. You see, God wasn't playing. He wasn't fooling. He was not messing around when he sent the prophets, when he sent Moses, when he gave them the Torah. Said, here it is, the first five books of Moses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. He said, here it is. Here's what you need to know. It's a need to know for the Hebrew people. Here they are. Then he follows that with the prophets. Along comes Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah. And they're speaking all these things regarding Messiah. He says, look, I've already spoken to them. I've given them more than enough information. And now add to that, for those of us who live now in the age of grace, the New Testament times, that he's given us the full revelation of the New Testament. That we have the eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Luke book 2, the book of Acts, that tells about what the apostles did and how the gospel spread and what happened in the early church. Then we have all these amazing letters that were written chiefly by the apostle Paul, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, you have Peter's writings. You have James's writings. These men that walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and saw Jesus do all We have all of that. One of the things that we visited while we were in Israel 
was the caves at Qumran. And then we went to the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem and we're watching, uh, you know, all these pieces that are just uh, of scrolls. The entire Old Testament was found in those caves. Save the book of Esther. Part of the book of Ruth. So every single thing that you have in your Old Testament, we have copies of that were written at least 111 years before Jesus ever set foot on planet Earth. Most of it over 200 years before Jesus ever set foot on planet Earth. You see, God was very fair. He said, I'm going to tell you about all of it in advance. I'm going to give you the books of Moses. I'm going to give you the Torah. I'm going to give you the Tanakh. And just for good measure, I'll throw in the Mishnah. I'll give you the commentary on all these things. Notice what he says. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Can I tell you that God only gives a certain amount of revelation because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't intellectually simply come to understand God and thereby be accepted by him. You must profess personal faith in Christ. That's what this passage is saying. You see, they had all the information, and it was assembled correctly. It was perfectly accessible to them. They understood it. They would even quote from it. But they didn't believe. And it is believing that saves. It's not knowing that saves. It's believing. You see, you can read truth, you can see truth, you can say, yep, I think that's truth, but until you take that step of faith, that leap across the chasm that says, I'm taking this from mere knowledge to belief by faith, you can't be saved. That's why I always tell people, if you can talk someone into being saved, someone else can talk them out of being saved. We're saved by faith. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Sound like some of those procrastinators in your life when you tell them that you believe that Jesus Christ is God's only son, that he died on Calvary's cross, he was buried in a tomb, he was raised three days later, and oh, by the way, he reigns forevermore in heaven. And they go, you're crazy, you're nuts. And yet there's overwhelming evidence that it's true. Billions of people have professed that that is truth and have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet people still say, well, it's just a fairy tale. It's just a myth. And you ask them to explain, well, why did 
1.5 million Christians under the rule of Nero submit themselves to be slaughtered in the Colosseum and burned alive as human torches and torn apart between chariots and ripped to shreds by wild animals when the only thing they needed to do to stop that was say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Because if you know the truth and the truth has set you free, you can't deny the truth. But it doesn't matter how many miracles you see if you don't believe by faith that this is true. One of the great mysteries of our, of our world that we live in today is that we're sharing with Amir who is, who is guiding our tour. One of the things that we as the Gentiles have been used to do is to provoke Israel to jealousy. Because we have a personal relationship. And it's what the Jewish people want. And with all that information, you still have a vast majority, whether you know it or not, a vast majority of the Jewish people in Israel are not believers in anything. A vast majority of them are agnostics at best. And many of them are outright atheists. If they believe in anything, they believe in tradition. They believe in Jewishness. But they don't even necessarily believe in God. You see, you can have the first five books of Moses, and you can have the prophets, and even though you've seen people raised from the dead, the nation Israel is testimony to God's power. Its very existence is testimony to God's power. There is no reason in the universe that Israel should even exist save that God has fulfilled Ezekiel 37. But though that dry bones valley has been raised up and he's put sinews back on it and they are now living in their own land, speaking their own language. You see, you got to make that decision before you exit this planet. And so here we find this picture of Abraham's bosom. When Abraham died, Genesis chapter 25 says he was gathered together with his people. That's what it says of Abraham's death. Now, he was buried, if you know the story, in a cave at Malpeca. Now, not every person related to Abraham was buried in that same cave, so it couldn't be that they were talking about burying everybody in the same cave. Where was the place that they were talking about? This place, Abraham's bosom. You see, because God allowed the people in Abraham's time to have faith and to wait. And they continued to wait And by the time that Jesus spoke these words, there were two compartments in that same place in Sheol. One with righteous dead and one with unrighteous dead. One with people who died in faith waiting for Messiah and one who said, we don't believe Messiah is going to come. And watch this with me. You, You see, as Abraham is gathered together, that those righteous dead, do you remember what Jesus said? 
when he was talking to the thief on the cross. Do you remember Luke chapter 23? Do you remember what Jesus said? What did he say to the one thief who received? The one who believed. He said, today you will be with me in where? Paradise. He didn't say heaven, did he? Nor did he mean heaven. He meant Sheol. Paradise. The same place that Lazarus went to. Check this out. You see, we know that today, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? Translated right into heaven. Boom, gone. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I don't like the waiting thing. I'm not a good waiter. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore, he says, check this out. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And in verse 9, now this he ascended, what does that mean? But that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth. For he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all things. Where did he go? Abraham's bosom. He said, Abraham, Lazarus. Abel, Noah, Joshua, Ruth, Rahab, all of you that died believing that one day Messiah would come, I'm here. It's time to go. Those who were captive, waiting in faith in that place called paradise, The other side that the rich man could see, but he could not go to, Jesus said, it's time to go. And so from that time when Jesus first descended before he ascended, from that time to this, paradise in Sheol is empty. But the unrighteous side, it's still there. And it's still full. And it's getting fuller every day with those who are awaiting judgment. And that judgment's coming at the end of the age. Revelation verse 20 says this in verse 11, and then I saw a great white throne. We'll cover this on Thursday night here in a couple of weeks. And him who sat on it, from whose face the heaven and the earth had fled away, and there was found no place for them, And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. Where is every believer's name written? The book of life. And can you imagine as the pages are flipped, sorry, John, but your name's not here. Sally, it's, I can't write you in now. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Finally, all of the dead and those who were awaiting as unrighteousness, that final judgment, now they're actually cast into the lake of fire. Hades. They were in Sheol. 
now that final judgment has happened. And that, it says, this is the second death. You see, if you're born twice, you die once. Amen? If you're born once, you die twice. First a physical death, and then a spiritual death at the great white throne. And everyone who's ever died without Christ is still waiting for this judgment. Where the books will be opened, and the accounts will be settled, and God's finally going to say, look, it's, it's over. And anyone not found, verse 15 says, written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. You see, for you and I, when Jesus said it is finished, to tell us die, it's finished. You're going home to be with Jesus. If you know him, if he's your Lord, he's your Savior, you've confessed him before men, you're good to go. Amen? You can rest and trust. You can be walking around, you can have too much bacon, boom, gone. Have an out-of-body experience with apple-smoked bacon. You're off to heaven. But for people who don't know him, very different story. They're going to be with that rich man who is waiting still. And notice he was waiting in torment while the poor man was in paradise. For those without Christ, this life is all there is. So there's only one side that now remains. You you see, you don't have to fear that if you're in Christ Jesus. So as you pick up the remainder of this story in just a, a short couple of minutes, you see what we really see is the story of two very different destinies. Those without Christ, you got what you got. You have what you have. What you've accumulated on this earth, this is as good as it gets. And I like to tell people these things this way. You can either take what you have here and use it for all it's got, or you can take what's behind door number two, which I guarantee you is a whole bunch better. You see, people like to be able to feel and touch, and, and it's not something that's abnormal. We're human beings. We're tactile. We like to be able to grab things. I always find it interesting that people are constantly, they'll, they'll come to me and say, well, should I trade in all of my IRA for uh, gold and silver coins, you know, because uh, Bob on TV said so. And I'll ask him, well, why would you want to do that? Say, well, because I'll have it in my safe. And I go, but what if it's worthless? Then you have something that's worthless in your safe. And they'll say, well, at least I can touch it. It's all about touching it and feeling it and looking at it and seeing it. You know the drill. If you've ever bought a new car, you know what happens. For like the first month, you kind of go out and you worship it and you polish it and wax it. And then you go to Target. And you get like eight dents in three minutes. Because the people let go of their carts and they come from the other side of Torrance and they're 80 miles an hour into your nice new car and And now you don't care about it anymore. Look, all of life is like a new car in the parking lot of Target. (laughs) 
Just saying. It's going to get dinged. It's going to get dented. It's never going to be all that you think it will be. But I can tell you this. I hath not seen nor has ear heard of the great things that await those who are his. The glory that is to come is so much better than what we have here. You, you want to make sure that you're choosing the right destiny. The dead are not dead. They're very much alive. And you can actually see that in this story. Doesn't it strike you that these guys are both dead, right? What are they doing? They're talking. They're feeling. They're going, this is torment. This is good. This is hot. This is like Hawaii. This is terrible. This is kind of awesome. They're very much in tune with what's going on, even though they are both D-E-A-D dead. So don't think because you step out of time and into eternity that you're going to go someplace where you lack feeling or where you're going to be devoid of understanding because notice that this guy even looked and said, Hey, isn't that Abraham? Isn't that Lazarus? When you're dead, you're going to be very much alive. The question is where? Where are you going to be? Where will you spend eternity? That's the question as we wrap up tonight. I'll bring the worship team back up. You see, our eternal destiny is based on our love for God and our faith in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. It's not based on your mental ascent and your understanding of eternal things. It's based on faith. It's have you believed. And so as the worship team comes up, and we're, we're going to sing a couple of worship songs, and I'm going to have some pastors come forward. If you're here tonight, and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm telling you, when you take your last breath, you're going to be very much alive somewhere. Somewhere. For most of us, we know where that's going to be. It's going to be in the presence of the Lord, wherein, Scripture says, is the fullness of joy. Where there are glories forevermore. But you've got to believe that by faith. It's not because Jeff says so. It's because the Bible tells me so. And God's been faithful and He's been true to His Word. He's confirmed it out of the mouth of witnesses. It's been maintained for thousands of years exactly as you have it in your hands. This is very old news that's still very good news. You see, what keeps a saved person in heaven is the same thing that gets us in heaven. It's the everlasting arms of our Savior Jesus. It's His life given for yours and for mine. You see, that rich man awoke 
and he realized that it was too late. Don't let that be you tonight. And if you're here tonight and you're, you're a child of grace, then as we worship, you need to rejoice because your sins have been forgiven and your life has been redeemed. And one day you're going to meet your king and you're going to come back and you're going to see him on this earth face to face exactly as Job said. David cried out the same thing. I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded, Paul said, that he is able to keep us unto the day of Christ Jesus. The word here that's gulf, this gulf that's fixed, is an interesting word in the original language, the Greek language. It's the word chasma. It means what you think it means. It's chasm. It also means, in a medical sense, an open wound. There's an open wound, and that wound is the wounds on the hands of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, the brow of Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was placed upon him. So if you make the right choice today, whether you have much or whether you have little, whether you're abased or whether you abound, you have the one thing that matters, and that's Christ. On that solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Make the choice tonight. If you don't know him, don't leave here without him. The pastors are going to come forward. We're going to worship. For those of you that are saved and you know it, rejoice in your salvation. Amen? Amen? And as we were flying over the polar ice caps on the way home Wednesday into Thursday, I was just rejoicing because, you know, that plane got blown up in the Mediterranean, that Egypt airplane, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going, you know, my whole family's on this plane. We all get blown up together. We're going to see each other in heaven. Not a morbid thought. It's actually just truth lived out in your life. It's like... You know, it gets better from here. It's not worse. The peace that passes our own human understanding that guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's worship. And then we'll pray and close.